I'm Nick Green, your co-host of But Are You Thriving? And today we're talking to nutrition expert, Thomas DeLauer. Thomas and I met almost seven years ago, back in the early days of Thrive Market, and we hit it off immediately because we share a common mission to make healthy living accessible to all. That's exactly what Thomas has done day in and day out for the last few years through his massively popular YouTube channel, which has over 3 million subscribers and counting. At a personal level, Thomas has also been an inspiration to me, whether it's convincing me to dabble in keto or more recently to build an intermittent fasting protocol. And his own personal journey is just incredible, losing over 100 pounds through shifts in his diet and his mindset. So without further delay, here's the episode. Hi, everyone. I'm Nick Green, co-founder and CEO of Thrive Market and your co-host of the But Are You Thriving podcast, where we explore what it means to thrive in our world today for our bodies, our minds, our families, communities, and planet. My guest today is Thomas DeLauer, the fitness trainer, nutrition coach, online influencer, whose health-focused YouTube channel now has 3.25 million subscribers, and his videos have been viewed over 400 million times. And Thomas has not only introduced millions of people to the power of science-backed health practices like intermittent fasting, he's also inspired many of those people by sharing his own personal journey, which among other things involved losing over 100 pounds through changes to his diet and lifestyle. I am personally super excited to have Thomas joining me today for two big reasons. The first is that his YouTube channel is truly a masterclass on thriving when it comes to personal health. He distills down complex topics, he debunks common myths, and most of all, he shares super actionable protocols that make healthy eating, or in the case of intermittent fasting, not eating, much, much easier. The second reason is that I have actually at a personal level, owe a huge debt of gratitude to Thomas because he is one of the longest standing and most impactful partners at Thrive Market. He aligns in every way with our mission to make healthy living accessible to all, and he's personally spread the word about Thrive to people looking for a simpler, more personalized, and more affordable way to eat healthy. So Thomas, thank you so much for all that you do, and thanks for coming on the pod. Man, thank you for having me. This is, I can't think of someone I'd rather podcast with today. We're looking forward to it. And, you know, this podcast is about thriving. So I want to start by really digging into how you thrive personally. So to kick it off, and a lot of our listeners are already familiar with your story, but for those that aren't, share a little bit about your personal journey, um, because it really is an incredible story of transformation, physically and otherwise. And I'm especially curious if there was a moment that you can remember that was a, you know, call it a turning point for you, like where you realized, hey, I'm surviving, but I'm not thriving. And how did you flip that switch? Yeah, it's actually it's one of my favorite stories to tell because I think a lot of people resonate with it. And my call to action wasn't this massive, crazy, like, you're going to die kind of thing. It was actually a very subtle, simple thing. Uh, but before I get to that, yeah, how I ended up essentially where I am today is I was 300 pounds at one point working in the corporate healthcare world. For a while, I was an executive recruiter, then a physician recruiter, then I moved into uh, part owner of an ancillary lab services company. When I was going through that acquisition, we were in the process of selling that company. Very stressful time. I had gone from being an athlete in high school, college to really just eating the same way, but sitting on my butt all the time. So it was sort of the quintessential like athlete gone wrong. I went from being an athlete to eating like an athlete, gained a bunch of weight. Uh, I was a little over 300 pounds at my heaviest. Um, I really didn't feel like I had a problem. I didn't feel like I was doing anything wrong until like really one point in time, it all kind of like, ref I reflected back on it. So at the point in time, 
Tuesdays and Thursdays, I used to have to drive across town for client meetings. And when I would go across town, that was my one time to go to Jack in the Box or go to Wendy's, usually Jack in the Box, and go through the drive-thru because people wouldn't recognize me. I'm on the other side of the city. I'm good. Like It's it's quiet place. I'm safe. Uh, I would do that every single week. And then one day, I was going through that drive-thru. I pulled out of the drive-thru. I parked in a parking spot next to the drive-thru. And I started to eat what I always got was Jack in the Box tacos and an Oreo cookie milkshake. That was just like my thing. And uh, sitting there, starting to eat those Jack in the Box tacos. And a buddy of mine drives by in his green Toyota 4Runner. And I remember it vividly. And he looks at me square in the eye as he's driving by, totally recognizes me, gives me this nonchalant sort of nod and a wave. And it was that nonchalant nod and wave that almost acted as a metaphor in my body. It was like, in my mind, it was like, wow, that was so casual to him, this acquaintance of mine. So it's a casual encounter where he's just like, hey, Oh, there's Thomas just chowing down on his tacos. Whereas the whole time, like I thinking, I'm thinking I'm hiding something, thinking nobody knows what I'm doing. It almost would have been better if he just had to like stopped his car right then and there and was like, what are you doing, Thomas? You shouldn't be doing this. But the fact that it would just registered as, yeah, that's probably what Thomas does on a daily basis, just based on how he looks. And uh, it just, I clicked. I was like, what the heck? Like, that is embarrassing. Like he just like, this is my identity. I'm the Jack in the box guy. And so that was the call to action. It was literally just a buddy of mine seeing me chowing down on Jack in the box tacos where I'm like, uh, something's got to change here. Yeah, it's so interesting the way, I mean, the reason I asked that question is because I do feel like, you know, for a lot of us, there's been some sort of inflection point and you don't necessarily realize it at the moment. But when you look back, like you said, you get that clarity and it's like, oh, yeah, the light bulb really went off. Out of pure curiosity, do you ever go back for good times sake to the Jack in the Box or was that the, la- the last time? It's funny, my videographer was in town this last weekend and we were filming some stuff and we were talking about just that. I'm like, man, you know, I would be lying if I didn't say that Like I don't crave it. Like I crave it every now and then. But no, uh, the last time I had one was when we filmed some content around it like five years ago. And I had one of those, like, if you've ever seen a Jack in the Box taco, they're like translucent. There's so much grease in the corn shell that it's, it's a transparent taco. Like it's like greasy and you just see the, not good. So I remember I ate that. It did not taste the way that it used to. It really didn't. Like when you, once your palate is different and you're used to eating healthy and, and once you, yeah, good, once you know what it is, right? Yeah. You're like, what yeah. is this? Yeah. Yeah. I, I grew up in the Midwest. So there was a uh, Dairy Queen was our thing. And I got to say like an, an Oreo blizzard still brings back just moments of utter bliss, but I haven't had one in 20 years. So yeah, we were talking about blizzards yeah, this we'll, weekend we'll too. Yeah. Those are, uh, I'm you know, Foster's freeze. Like, I mean, you know, I'm not, I'm not a monster. I definitely like, you know, it's not like I've been like this my whole life. I definitely, even, even as an athlete, when I was younger and I could really get away with it, running track, running cross country. Yeah. I'd put down eight or nine of those Jack in the box tacos. <laughs> it's like no problem, but yeah. I've heard you tell that story, uh, not, uh, not the story about the Jack in the box, but just the story of transformation uh, a number of times. And, and you share it really candidly on your, on your YouTube channel, but it just is like always so powerful because, you know, you get on that YouTube channel and you see what you look like today and the, you know, the physique you've maintained, the fitness performance you've maintained, the business that you've built. And I think most people wouldn't imagine where you started. And as much as the information and the content on your site is incredible, I really think it's that inspiration that is like probably the most special thing. And I think gets people pumped when they go on there and say, hey, this guy like looks like 
I look or looks even, or used to look like I look or used to look even worse than than where I was at. And look at what he's been able to do. Um, I think that's you know so much of the battle of getting healthy is getting that light bulb to turn on and getting the inspiration. Hundred percent. And so I want to I want to talk a little bit about your inspiration today, and your I mean your inspiration for what you do because today so much of your focus is not on your personal health but on the health of millions of other people. And you know at Thrive Market we talk a lot about purpose at our company and how that is the key to us thriving as a business. And, you know, I was really struck. I just went on your YouTube channel again this weekend, getting ready for this podcast and seeing you still got this uh, single video at the beginning. It starts playing automatically. And it's not a video that's specifically talking about some hack or some like myth buster or some list of things to do. It's, it's literally a video of you being pretty vulnerable and saying, this is why I do what I do. And you sell, you, you tell your story on that, on that video, but you also talk about, you know, your personal mission. So, I wanted you to just share a little bit about like how do you think about your mission today? Why is that meaningful to you? And and how has that helped you thrive? You know, not just in your your health, but also in your in your career and in your business. Yeah, it's a good good way to put it. I mean, I've always been a little bit of an empath, right? Like it's, it's to my detriment sometimes where I, I really feed off of sort of empathetic value and, and driving other people. I've always, and I don't want to sound like boastful here, but I've always seen myself as a leader in one way or the other, simply because I think I have a good way of communicating. I think I'm good at communicating and articulating and getting people excited, but only about things that I'm inherently excited about too. So for now, you know, it, it changes all the time. I mean, my my true mission is to really arm people with knowledge so that they can make better decisions. I'm not trying to influence people one way or the other anymore. There was a time period where probably it's probably evolved with maturity, but early on in the stages of kind of developing my channel, it was really a lot about like, hey, this is what I do, and I think what I do is best, and you should try this. And although it wasn't quite that tone, it was a helpful tone that really inspired people because they're like, I want to do exactly what Thomas does. But as my audience has grown, my mission has had to change because it's had to become less about, hey, what just works for me, but more about leveraging my gift of being able to communicate science and communicate health. So with that, you know, my mission has been to like educate as many possible people as I can, even if their dietary choices go against the grain of what I might do personally. Because I really do believe that if we learn to vote with our dollars by making good decisions, we can literally change the world. Because as much as we may not want to admit it, like the world is driven by what's who's spending money where and where is their energy going, right? And that is driven a lot by consumer mentality and mindset. So not directly necessarily saying, hey, buy XYZ, but by influencing people where you are really planting such an educational seed in their mind that they cannot shop without thinking about it that way. And that is how you change the world. Because if people start spending millions and billions of dollars in a different trajectory, then that's what companies are going to start making in terms of their food. And they're going to supply and demand. They're going to, you know, it's, so it's, uh, that's become my mission. It's like, how do I just arm people with the knowledge so that they don't always need me, but they can always trust me? Yeah, I love that. And, and the, the shift that you're describing between like sort of a more prescriptive approach of like, do this, do this, do this versus here's a toolkit and take what works for you, take what you need and and kind of meeting people where they are. That's also something that just resonates so deeply with me from from Thrive of seeing you know, different people are in such different places in that journey to getting healthy. And you know, as we know, just like metabolically, people are different too. So what they need could be different. 
And you know, how do you make the biggest tent possible so that as many people can be inspired to make these changes? And like you said, the movement is what creates then change in the industry and in businesses and all of that. So um, really, really love that approach. One more question just on your journey. And this one is, again, a little bit coming from my like entrepreneurial background. You know, when we started Thrive, we were rejected by every VC we talked to, you know, had moments within the first six months where we literally thought the business was just going to fail, like we would just have to stop and yet persevered. And, you know, I look at you today and you're, you know, coaching professional athletes. You've got almost 400 million views on your YouTube channel. You've got successful business interests all over the place. You're writing best-selling books. I mean, it's just incredible. And I think it's easy to look at that and say, wow, you kind of were destined to greatness from the beginning. And you talked about being a natural leader, but I'm curious, when you started this whole game, when you started the YouTube channel, did you have any inkling, any idea that it could get to the level, the scale, the impact that it has? (laughs) <laughs> Not even remotely. No, I've always been kind of a little bit of a jack of all trades. Like I've always been kind of 70% good at a little bit of everything, but not 100% good at one thing. <laughs> and like, it's always been, I've been, I've always joked that like I'm good enough to, at stuff to just get myself frustrated that I can't be good enough to be really good, if that makes sense. Like, <laughs> I, I, like just good enough to hang with people that are somewhat good, but never good enough to like get really, really good at something. But I feel like for once in my life, this is an area where that actually works well because I can be versatile. But the one thing that I've learned, again, that I'm really good at is just articulating. So this was not, I mean, what's that saying? I can't remember specifically how it goes, but it's, you know, like an overnight success that's 10 years in the making. It's, you know, people might look at my channel and say, okay, yeah, this this person, you know, he's got a great physique. He's built this. And yeah, it's been like that from day one. Never in my wildest dreams did I expect my channel to explode the way that it did. It was kind of by accident. I mean, it was, I started my channel almost off of a bet with my wife in some ways, because after I lost weight, I was like, ah, maybe, you know, let's see what I can do. I, I'm kind of in good shape now. And maybe I'll see if I can get my, you know, get on the cover of a magazine or something. And my wife's just kind of like laughing at me like, you know what, Thomas, if there's one thing I know about you, you like, you'll put your nose to the grindstone and you'll somehow get it done. And it was like four months later that I landed my first magazine cover. So when I started releasing some videos on YouTube talking about my story and sort of my transformation, it was really good timing along with that kind of mainstream media like imagery coming out like those magazine covers but then what separated me was i always knew that there needed to be a bridge built between health and fitness like i looked at fitness and i was like when i was shooting those magazine covers and kind of in that world i'm like there's something wrong with this industry i can't put my finger on it and what was wrong with it was that there wasn't an emphasis on health it was just like do whatever you can to get the sub five percent body fat and look a certain way and like this is not like but then if you looked at health it was like only granola, super, super, like way off in that direction. I'm like, come on. Like, I know there's regular people that, you know, want to eat this kind of stuff, but don't because they feel like it would be too hippy dippy. Like, I'm just like, well, what about trying to be able to like connect everything and bridge that gap? So I think that was what really ended up connecting people with me was being able to make regular people feel like they are worthy of becoming optimized and and chasing something. It's so interesting to hear you talk about that because I think there's, I mean, one, I very much relate to it of like, you kind of get the ball rolling, you know, you're going to do one thing that leads to another and leads to another. And then you see this opportunity and that builds from there. And all of a sudden the snowball is like growing. And before you know it, you have something really big. 
And where, you know, I've described it before as like feeling almost like an accidental entrepreneur. But I also like, well, the reason I like you describing that too is I think it's not just true for entrepreneurial things, but it's also for like people's personal health journeys where it's like, you know, the whatever, the proverbial 500 mile journey starts with a single step. And I think so many people, it's so intimidating to think out to like, how do I ever get there? But if you just get started, it's like, you get, you know, this leads to this, that leads to that. You get a little momentum and all of a sudden things are happening. I want to fast forward. You know, you've been this like overnight success, 10 years in the making. You've arrived at this place. Today, you're writing best-selling books. You're coaching clients. You're putting out, I mean, ungodly amounts of content. I'm just like, it's amazing. Those 400, 400 million views on YouTube, it's a lot. But then you think like, wow, you've done hundreds and hundreds of hours and you're putting out new content every single week. You also have a wife of many years. You have two kids. I know you're a really active dad. You travel. You're active personally. Like, how the heck do you manage all of this stuff today? Like, how do you thrive in your life today with that many responsibilities and just balls in the air? Yeah. To make it kind of cliche, I try to live in the moment. Try to just, you know, it never gets easier. My wife and I were just talking this morning. I mean, we're in a tornado. It it is a tornado. And it's like, you know, two young kids, five-year-old and a two-year-old, you know, we... It's, yeah, running a business, it's definitely, I mean, I have to give a very thoughtful nod and a lot of credit to my wife to be able to keep me doing what I do and be able to balance it all. You know, my wife and I have been together since high school, so we can communicate without even communicating. Like we are almost telepathic. So being able to raise kids is a very interesting thing with she and I, because I know what she needs, she knows what I need, and we can just almost in mimery, just like be able to communicate. Now. One thing I'm guilty of, I mean, I don't do a great job of setting boundaries. And, you know, it's funny because I was talking about this on a podcast with someone uh, about a month ago. And they were asking a similar question. They're like, how do you set boundaries between your family and your work? I'm like, well, I don't know if I do. And I kind of, I'm glad I don't because I don't want to compartmentalize my life in such a way where I feel like I have work and I have life. One thing that I feel very fortunate to have created is a life where I am literally talking about what I love and talking about what I do. So for me to compartmentalize and say, this is Thomas DeLauer's persona and then step over and be dad, that's not even true. It's just, it's all encompassing. And what we're trying to, we're homeschooling our kids and what we're trying to teach our kids is like sort of this entrepreneurial mindset too of like, it's all one big mix mash. Like they really are, it is just one thing together. And the more that we compartmentalize it, sometimes that's really difficult. And the interesting thing is that actually applies for people that are in like a corporate setting that aren't necessarily building their own business. And that's actually, I mean, I have to give a very good level of credit to Thrive because like your employees are super happy. You create this environment that's really good for them. And like every single employee of Thrive I've ever talked to feels like it's an extension of their life. And that's exactly the culture I'm trying to create within my company too. Like I want people that work for me as well as my family to feel like, hey, we are all assets in this together and we're all growing and we're all spreading a good message. And we don't have to go home at night, take off one hat, put on another. Now, the hard part with that is the time boundaries. That's the only thing that becomes difficult. There's clear lines of delineation between when I need to step on camera and I need to focus and I need to be in the zone. But I would be lying if I said that I don't look forward to uh, (laughs) filming. Like I really do look forward to getting in front of the camera because I'm usually so excited to share what I've learned. And then, you know, if my family and my kids can be a part of that, then 
yeah, it's, it's a win. I can just do this forever. There's no, no proverbial finish line. Yeah, I think it goes back to what you were saying earlier about just the personal mission and doing what you love and sharing something that you're passionate about and that passion coming out. And I think, you know, it makes possible something that is very, I think used to not just be something people didn't even expect or think was possible. I distinguish between work-life balance versus work-life integration. Mm-hmm. And like when your work and life are, are the same thing and what you care about in both of those areas, you know, seamlessly weaves together the two integrate. And it's funny you mentioned like even, and I think like it might sound a little weird from the outside, but like getting your kids involved and like letting them see the business and making them entrepreneurial. Um, I've started taking my daughter who's five to work sometimes. And, you know, she's definitely not going to sit through a whole work day. But if we've got a fun event where we're doing a service project or, you know, we're filming something in the office or we have an interesting guest speaker or we had an offsite one time and I, t- I took her to that a, a few months ago, um, just for her to understand and ask questions about what is Thrive Market. And they're at a five-year-old level. But she's getting this understanding that like, hey, this is what Papa's really passionate about doing. And, and you know, she doesn't see it as just the thing that kind of keeps me away from them for too many hours of the day. It's a good way to put it. So super, super interesting. I used to spend a fair bit of time trying to explain to my son, you know, I explained to my daughter too, but she's only two. But my son, I would explain, okay, well, you know, daddy's got to go, like we used to give him kind of a star system where he'd earn stars for chores and things like that. And and uh, he, we started out kind of being like, oh, well, when daddy has to work, daddy has to go earn stars. And we're like, okay, that's great, but that's very transactional. And I started thinking like, I do want him to understand the value of a dollar, of course. But it wasn't until maybe six months ago where he started realizing, like when people see, us, see me in the grocery store and they recognize me or they see me and they say, oh, Thomas, you've changed my life or whatever. You know, started out my son being like, well, Daddy, why does that guy know you? Or why is that guy saying you changed his life? What did you do to him? And I'm like, well, you see, like, you know, those like little uh, remote control car videos you watch on YouTube sometimes? Well, Daddy has a show on YouTube and my show is helping people. So now he starts to understand that, you know, when I go into the studio and I'm filming, he associates it with me helping people, which is really cool because like he used to just see it as like a dad is going to earn stars. No, dad is, yes, he's earning stars, but the bigger purpose here is he's helping people and earning stars is a byproduct and it's kind of cool. So it's really teaching him like, how do I kill two birds with one stone, so to speak? He's like, how can I earn stars, but also do something good? And it's just awesome that he's learned that just without me even teaching it. He's just seen it by osmosis. Exactly. It's like just, it's amazing what when you expose kids to something, you know, how much they'll take. And obviously it's going to be developmentally kind of, you know, calibrated to where they're at. But um, I'm always amazed. We, we have a five-year-old, a two-and-a-half-year-old, and a six-month-old. Very di- di- different developmental stages, but like it never stops amazing me. Like the things that they can grasp onto, the things they'll remember and how wise they can really be even at a young age. So I guess I, did, I didn't realize that our kids our, are similar ages, right? Yeah, I didn't realize you had a five and two. That's exactly like Tommy turns five tomorrow. Emma is uh, uh, was born in uh, April, so she's two and a half. I don't have a six-month-old, but I didn't realize our, our olders were uh, so close. Yeah, we, I can give you some advice on adding that third, that third one into the mix. Um, I will say it's been, a, it's been a, a, a journey in general, and then also like a wild time with three, five or younger. Yeah, you're outnumbered now. Yeah, we had three years between the first two, two years between the second two. And I will say that extra year between uh, between kids does help. But it's all fun and it's all, um, you know, as you know, the most magical thing in your life. All right, so I have one more question before I want to get into some heavy-hitting kind of protocols and, and sharing of info with the with the listeners. And this one, I think, is just such an important theme when you talk about the ability 
or when we talk about the ability to thrive and one that I think historically has been uh, kind of ignored and it's, it's mental health. And I think one of the coolest things on your YouTube channel and that you've been really candid about and vulnerable about personally is talking about the you know, mental dimension of health and you know, really making that connection too between diet and lifestyle and like physiologically, how does that change the way your brain's going to work, the way your brain's going to perform, how you're going to hear, uh, feel emotionally. And yeah, you know, that stuff is like endlessly fascinating. And then it's also just, you know, super inspiring too. Like you shared that, you know, back when you were uh, before your health transformation, actually suffering from anxiety and depression yourself. And, you know, you look at the stats uh, for uh, Americans all over the country today, all different stages of life, you know, they're dealing with physical health and they're also dealing with mental health challenges. So I would love to hear you talk one about the, just like that connection in general, because you're so good at explaining it. And then also just you know, how that's been a factor in your own you know, mental and emotional well-being and, and uh, you know, kind of accompany the physical transformation that you had you know, those years back. I love talking about this because it's, it's really near and dear to me and still suffer with anxiety. I mean, it's, it's one of those things where you can, you can kind of control it a little bit. You can be aware of it. Being aware of it is probably the biggest piece, but it's a, it's a difficult thing to just kick, right? When you talk about the brain and how being potentially healthier and making better nutrition choices, the way I tend to describe it is you can only willpower your way through so much, okay? So when your brain is exhausted, when your brain is fatigued, it's typically running in a lot more of an anxious state. And there's kind of a saying that says, a calm brain or a relaxed brain is a fast brain. And we tend to think it's the opposite. So we tend to jack ourselves up with lots of caffeine. And I have no problem with caffeine, but we tend to use it as a lot of a crutch, right? We, we lean on caffeine, we lean on sugar, we lean on foods that are inflammatory because we get this quick instant hit to sort of push ourselves over this hump. When in reality, being able to make the brain calm down being able to take breaks from food. That's why I'm such a big fan of intermittent fasting. I feel like it gives the brain a chance to sort of heal, recover, let the processes kind of uh, defragment, sort of like defragging an old computer. You know, you go through that defragment processes and it consolidates files. And that's kind of what's happening in your brain. And the biggest thing that's standing in the way with us that I can put in a very colloquial way is inflammation, right? Brain inflammation is such a big thing. And if you think of inflammation as sort of a static, like a, just a TV static or radio static, signals that are coming between your brain and your body and different you know, neurons and this whole communication pathway, think of it as they're having a lot of static when there's this inflammation there. It's like the communication just cannot really be effective. And this trickles down beyond mental health. It obviously has to do with insulin. It has to do with a lot of different things with insulin resistance and things. But speaking specifically mentally, when you start looking at the peer-reviewed research, when brain inflammation comes down, instances of anxiety and depression come down. Well, unfortunately, we live in a state now where we're chronically stressed on top of having a bad diet. So we just have a lot of inflammation. And it's obviously, you can get very granular. Neurochemistry is well above my pay grade, but I know enough to be able to explain to people that when you start making healthier decisions and you're not having to prefrontal cortex your way through everything, it's like you just don't, there's not enough energy to constantly be having to think about everything that you do. That's what makes you anxious. You should be able to have this subconscious drive to make good decisions, but that subconscious drive can't really exist if your brain is crowded all the time with fuzz. So it doesn't matter what kind of diet you do. It's about getting rid of the super hyperpalatable, hyperprocessed stuff that's lighting our brain up, right? We're bombarding our brain with these signals and it's too much for our brain to handle. Like, just like we don't do well when we're multitasking, 
eating foods that have 10,000 ingredients is like multitasking on your dopamine receptors. It's just like your brain is like, what the heck do I do? There's so many amazing tastes and signals coming at me from every angle. And that can burn stuff out. Again, very colloquial way of putting it. I mean, those are, those are such great metaphors, though. The metaphor of static, I love. I, I sometimes feel like, you know, if, I'm, like, if I haven't gotten sleep or I've not been eating well or I'm just stressed out, it's like I'm like pushing through molasses. And it's, it's a very interesting concept, too, of like, look at the, all the ingredients that you have in processed food, right? It's like forcing your body and your mind to multitask, basically. I love that analogy. There's, there's a lot going on there. And we don't, we don't always realize, you know, things like MSG and all that stuff. It's just like, people will say, oh, it's not that bad. And again, the thing with science is you can find supporting data for pretty much anything. So the bottom line is that MSG, good, bad, or ugly, like I don't want to pick on a specific ingredient, but I'm using it as an example. Literally, whether it's naturally occurring or not, the idea behind MSG is to trigger the glutamate receptor in your brain. And glutamate, you have glutamate and you have GABA. Gamma butyric acid is like the calming side of your brain. That's when you're relaxed and when you're calm. Things that spike that glutamate side on the glutamate scale, those are things that are excitatory. Okay, so things that have these hyperpalatable preservatives and things like that in them to make them taste a certain way or to trigger the brain into making you want to eat more, they literally do that for a reason. They put that stuff in process chips and garbage because it gets you to eat more. It makes you compulsive basically towards yes, the food. 100%. It makes you compulsive towards the food. Yeah. Yeah. When I was going through, you know, my transformation, I I actually I've been meaning to do a video specifically on this, but I've struggled with how to word it uh, because I don't want to kind of play the victim card a whole lot, but you know, I was pretty heavily addicted to Xanax when I was overweight. I was you know, I had pretty bad anxiety to the point where I was like popping Xanax like they were Skittles just to get myself chilled out. And then I would couple that with at one point like nine to 10 monsters a day. Like it was like just the worst possible combination to get through a stressful workday. And so who knows where I would be if I didn't change my diet, right? That was the path I was going down was just, and I know there's a lot of people out there that are like that, that just get, that they just get hooked on the way something makes them feel because of their anxiety, right? They need to, they need to deal with it. And it's something that just is not addressed enough. We talk about mental health as if it's, you have a problem. <laughs> like It's something that everybody faces, just people just don't always talk about it openly because it hasn't been widely accepted as a very normal thing. And the normalization of it would also devalue people's symptoms and feelings. So we have to be careful how you normalize it, right? You don't want to say, Hey, it's normal. Like if my wife's having a really bad day, you know, she's really anxious. If I normalize her anxiety, that actually invalidates her feelings. So she's like, no, like it's not normal. I feel, I feel terrible. And the bottom line is that a lot of us are feeling that way and they're not alone and it's not normal. We shouldn't be feeling like that all the time. It's the, the world we live in today is a stressful world in a different way than it was a couple thousand years ago. So it's a delicate dance to how to do that. But I figure the best that I can do is live by example, by explaining that I still battle with anxiety, but by making good food choices and caring about my health, I'm able to have enough mental wherewithal to be aware of it and know when it's just anxiety talking and not real life. Well, and, and it sounds like to cope with it in ways that are healthy as opposed to, you know, where too many people today have, have feel like they have to go, which is to the Xanax or to some other prescription meds or to, you know, worse yet, self-medicating, whether it's with alcohol or, you know, very commonly food. 
caffeine, like you said. I mean, again, I just want to just express a lot of gratitude for your courage to be talking openly about about that topic. Um, I can't tell you how many entrepreneurs, myself included, have dealt with you know that like continuum from kind of worry and intense thought and obsessiveness, which can be productive to, you know, like you said, all out anxiety, which can be very, not only unproductive, but just so difficult to deal with, you know, emotionally. So it is, like you said, we live in this strange new era where it's now normal to be anxious. It's normal to be depressed because we're in a very abnormal world compared to, you know, a hundred years ago, or for sure compared to our evolutionary history. So I think it's, it's just so important to be talking openly about it. And, you know, the other thing I really appreciate in what you said, and you've, you've said this on your channel too, is like, it's not like you just instantly solved it, right? It's like, oh, I had anxiety then and then it goes away, right? This is something that like the world that we live in, the intersection of that and our own neurochemistry, like you may be dealing with that for forever in some way, form, but yeah, it's how, how do you manage it and the ability to move through it and move with it. And I mean, that's, that's super, super inspiring and I know a lot of people are somewhere on that journey, so thank, thank you for sharing it. Okay, I want to shift gears a little bit. We've got about 10 minutes left, and so this is going to be the kind of uh, more rapid-fire part. And you know, in part one here, we, we went through kind of how you thrive. I want to now take you know, your expertise on helping others thrive and try to really distill it down. So I'm going, to, I'm going to put a challenge to you, which is you've done hundreds of hours of YouTube videos, all of this, all of this content. Can we basically distill this down in 10 minutes to the 80-20 on, you know, Thomas DeLauer's protocols? And I want to start with, like, maybe if you could just try to crystallize two or three or, you know, four or whatever core cornerstones of your health and fitness philosophy. Like, it's just, just like, these are like my guiding principles. If, if you hear nothing else, what are the three or four lessons you would want to impart to viewers on your YouTube channel or listeners today? The one that stands out the most, first and foremost, is diversity of food. I feel like that's become really, really important based on the research that I have been bombarded with over the years. What I mean by that is it's easy to get very myopic in your way of thinking with food. And I understand that sometimes that's what it takes to get motivated. You know, some people do carnivore, some people do, you know, other things that can be very, uh, and I have no problem with carnivore, by the way. It's just, uh, just as an example, can get very, very narrow. I'm a firm believer when you look at the epidemiological data, the regions that eat the most diverse food have the best body composition, the best lifespan, the best health span. They're, they're healthy and vibrant up until their older years. All has to do with the diversity of their food and the diversity of their microbiome. And people think, oh, I need to focus on my microbiome. That means I just need to take a probiotic or I just need to eat vegetables. No, the microbiome is way deeper than that. You're talking all kinds, like meat impacts the microbiome too. So you're looking at just a wide variety of foods to be able to take care of the microbiome. And you look at us, and full disclaimer, this is pure theory on my part, this second part of this. Okay, the, the, the data is there on diverse microbiome. That's pretty solid. But this next part is my theory. I just want to be clear on that. When you look at sort of the industrial revolution and you look at the intelligence of humans and how it had hockey-sticked a whole lot around industrial revolution and transportation... My theory is that, hmm, I believe that our IQ and our intelligence started to skyrocket when we started to be able to obtain foods from other areas of the world. Because all of a sudden, we're not just stuck with what we were eating in our region. We are suddenly able to expand our microbiome by having foods that our microbiome would react totally differently to and expand our microbiome and take it from 
Paleolithic times when we could only eat what was in an X mile radius and then take it to now where if I want a food from Japan, I can go down to the store and have a food from Japan. And it's, that's a whole different world. I could be completely wrong. Again, full disclaimer, but when I look at the data and I start, and it's just an interesting thought that I've had. So science is all about what is concrete, what is known, but then what is out there in the abyss that we're trying to learn. Okay, the second thing that I've learned, this is in the absence of intermittent fasting, because the next part I will talk about fasting. I think if even if people don't want to practice intermittent fasting, one of the most important things that people can do is have a 12-hour gap between their food in terms of nighttime to breakfast. That is not long enough to be considered intermittent fasting, but it's long enough to give your body a break. Okay. And I was talking to Dr. Rhonda Patrick about this, and she had some interesting things to say. Like people think fasting is like this black and white, like, okay, I've got to shut the door for food to come in. No, it's about, we need to train our bodies to have long enough breaks to actually utilize the food that we're taking in. Because if we're constantly bombarding ourselves with food, then we're never getting a chance to actually utilize it. And the amount of energy and recovery that goes into metabolizing and also goes into storing, if you really want to look at it that way. So my general rule for people that just, and I did this with my father-in-law who just you know lost about 80 pounds this last year. And he was having a hard time making these choices. And just like, man, I'm telling you, dude, if you just like stop, cut off your eating at 7 p.m. and don't eat again until 7 a.m., that alone might just be the impetus that you need to start making better decisions. Just that alone, and again, I can't promise people are going to make these same results, but just that alone, he lost like 10 pounds in three weeks. I mean, it was just like, and he's like, I didn't change anything. Well, you probably did. You probably did eat less, but you didn't think about it, right? So with that, number three is I think that two or three days a week, stretch that 12-hour window a little bit more. Push it a little bit. Try to push it to 14. Try to push it to 16. But the important thing is I don't want you doing it every day, right? I'm just thinking, and again, you don't even need to look at it as fasting. I just feel like we have such a compulsive need to be grazing and eating. The average, I can't remember exactly what it is. So I don't want to butcher this, but I had read somewhere that the average American, at least, consumes something, consumes something over 30 times per day. So like we're like not just sitting down having a square meal, but we're consuming something. And that tells me that we have a, a little bit of a dopamine issue here where we need a constant like, I need something, I need something. And if you're not eating, you're checking your phone. And if you're not checking your phone, you're doing something else. And you're getting all these nasty addictions that I'm not going to really talk about, but there's like all kinds of just different addictions people get into, right? And it's all because we're trying to satisfy that dopamine itch. And one of the most important things that you can do to sort of cut that off is take clear and defined breaks from food that sometimes go for longer periods of time. And forget the nuanced discussion about whether fasting works better than caloric restriction or not. Forget all of that. Let's talk about the brain for a second. And it's just a simple element of mastery of being able to train yourself that you can go without food for 14 or 16 hours. And you can train yourself and you are mentally strong enough and you can reset those dopamine receptors a little bit so that you have more control. Okay. Now, the fourth pillar that I would say of course, on days you're not fasting, because it would be different, consolidate your calories earlier in the morning and taper as the day goes on. Okay. Back in like the 80s, 90s, we started to develop- This one, these. by the way, this is really interesting because I feel like so many people do the exact opposite, where they try <laughs> to go, go to like noon without eating, and then they like load up at the end of the day. I find this so fascinating because if you look at more traditional cultures, a lot of them will have their biggest meal of the day earlier. My mm-hmm. wife is from Spain and like their big meal is lunch. And then dinner, like, you know, her dad used to have a tomato for dinner, you know, kind of thing. It was just, it was always front loading those calories. So keep going, but I just think that's yeah. so interesting. You're right. A lot of the Mediterranean cultures are that way. And uh, sometimes you think about, in the Mediterranean, I'm a big 
Mediterranean proponent. Uh, you know, that's probably like if I had to say like, what's the one diet style you could default to? Like if it was like, it would be Mediterranean. I usually put like a lower carb skew on Mediterranean, a little less carbs, not even full keto, but just lower carb Mediterranean with some fasting. But yeah, I mean, we think Mediterranean, we think, oh, well, they have these big giant dinners where they're like sitting down for three hours and grazing. Well, that's maybe in the situations where they're like having festivities or they're with family and that's a more like celebratory time. Once a week maximum. Yeah, exactly. Most of the time, it's like you said, they are like, oh, maybe I'll have some, you know, uh, prosciutto and a tomato. You know, it's like, that's it. it. It's something simple. So I usually suggest, hey, unless you're in a specific circumstance, have your calories early in the day and taper off. And there's a lot of reasons when it comes down to like circadian genes and clock genes, circadian cues. and we know we're not going to get nuancy with that. If you start your day with these small meals, like we've kind of been accustomed to doing, like, oh, grab a quick on-the-go granola bar for breakfast. Okay, you're going to have a 200-calorie breakfast, and then you're going to be so hungry at lunch, you're going to eat 2,000 calories for lunch, and then you're going to eat 2,000 calories for dinner. Whereas I can almost promise you, if you flip that and you said, I'm going to have a 1,500-calorie breakfast, or I'm going to have a 1,000-calorie breakfast, which sounds like a lot, but it's actually not that much, then all of a sudden you're like, I'm not that hungry for lunch. Maybe I'll just have, you know, some turkey and I'll be good. And then, you know what, for dinner, yeah, let's just have a nice light dinner, you know, have a little soup or something. You don't need to be having it flip-flopped. It makes a huge difference in how you sleep, your body composition, your insulin dynamics, and a number of other things. I'm just so glad you brought that one up because in my personal life, I found the exact same thing. It's really easy for me to have a light dinner. It's a lot harder for me to go like the first half of the day without any, without any, any caloric intake. And, you know, there's an, there's an expression that was like kind of a maxim back, I think, from like 150 years ago. They used to say, breakfast like a king, lunch like a prince, dinner like a pauper, something mm-hmm. to that effect. Yep. And that was kind of like the guideline for health. And now we've sort of reversed that. All right. I want a really quick hit on intermittent fasting. Specifically, you know, you've got a book, by the way, for all of our listeners who are interested, best-selling book, Intermittent Fasting Made Easy, which is awesome. But what is your like protocol in you know thirty seconds? Just like how do you how do you do it personally to get your yeah. results? Thirty seconds. This will be tough, but thirty seconds. Uh, I take uh, two to three days per week. I intermittent fast for about eighteen hours. That's my general. Now I, I change it up, of course, but uh, my general rule is that fasting should always be the anomaly. Like the moment that fasting starts becoming something you do every day. That's great. It still works well for the brain, still works well for a lot of things, but eventually it just becomes a form of caloric restriction. So fasting should always be a little bit of a shock, a little bit of an anomaly. So out of a seven-day period, I will fast two or three days out of every seven days at total random because I don't want to necessarily have a plan. Now, when you get started, you should have a plan because it helps you. But for me, it's pretty... uh, pretty inherent now. And I just kind of go with the flow. I wake up and think I'm not that hungry today. You know, it's a great day to fast. You know, so that's the simple rules of it is don't have a whole lot of rules. And that fast is 24 hours or is it 18 hours? What do you do in those two or three days? Yeah. So it'll typically be an 18 hour. So it'll be like fasting from, let's say 5 PM to maybe noon or somewhere within that. Right. So that's going to be more like 19 hours, but anywhere from like 7 p.m., you can push it down. So it's like you know, just 18 hours of fasting with a six-hour eating window, but I still try not to eat right before bed. So even though I have a six-hour eating window, I'm not living up that full six hours. You know, I'm not like eating at the very last minute of that sixth hour. I'm usually trying to cut off food by 7 p.m. So that's kind of my general rule because I, ever since having kids, I've struggled with my sleep. It's just been something that happens to parents. And uh, so, yeah, so I stopped eating. You, you and me both. 
Yeah. It doesn't matter. Even when the kids are sleeping through the night, it's like, it's just, you, you, it's like you're sleeping with one eye open all the time. And from what I understand, that doesn't yeah, end. It never comes back. <laughs> yeah. All right. So three, three very rapid fire questions. First, your top, th- and these, these just like whatever comes to mind first, what are your top three foods? If you were to say like core of the diet. Okay. I think, uh, lean meats, you know, lower saturated fat meats, like Mediterranean lean meats. Okay. I like seaweed. I'm a big fan of seaweed. So anything with that. And then I feel I'm, I'm a big fruit guy. So even when I'm low carb, I still consume a lot of berries. So I feel like, you know, if we were to have either lean meats slash eggs, seaweed, I think is one of the most power packed, like fibrous things that we can have beta glucans in it. Super like if you could do it so packed with nutrients in such a small amount. And then, uh, yeah. And then being able to have some kind of berries, preferably blueberries or raspberries. Awesome. Uh, three supplements. A really good probiotic, I think, is good. Uh, I don't think it's necessary for everybody. Uh, magnesium, definitely, definitely a big one. And coenzyme Q10. Awesome. You don't talk as much about your exercise regimen, which I'm, I'm very curious about, because I know you must be spending a lot of time doing, doing that. But what's your, like, if you had three go-to exercises, what would they be? Yeah, if I had to pick specific exercises, I would say... Uh, one of those rogue, like echo bike type things, like the fan bikes, the bikes that have like the, you know, like the Schwinn Airdyne bikes. I just think that's a great full body. Like you're, you're using your arms to kind of help pump the pedals, you know, those big bikes with a big fan in the front. I think for cardio, that's amazing outside of running, but I'm going to say like specific exercises, resistance training, the deadlift. I think whether you're 95 years old or you're 10 years old, a deadlift is just an amazing move to keep the lower. People think, oh, deadlifts are going to kill my back. Well, if you're going heavy, yes, you know, and you can work up to that. But being able to train that posterior chain to become strong is how you bulletproof your back. You want to work through those things that are difficult. So, so deadlifts, whether you're with dumbbells, kettlebells, barbell, I recommend starting with a dumbbell if the kettlebell, if the barbell is hard for you to kind of range emotion wise. And then as far as uh, let's see, let's find another good good exercise that I I do all the time. I got aerobic. I got a big. I think some form of plyometric is very, very important as we get older. So whether it's going to be like a box jump, something like that, or depth jumps where you're jumping off of a box under the ground, uh, being able to train the feet to handle that kind of plyometric move. That people think, oh, it's concussive. That's going to hurt. It doesn't need to be major, massive jumps. Like even people that are 50, 60 years old, like doing plyometric moves to build bone mineral density and to be able to actually train the bone to be harder so you're not battling osteoporosis, especially for women. I think those three are probably what I would consider the best. That's awesome. Okay. Uh, we're coming up to the end here. And there's two questions that we ask every guest. The first is, you know, very, very fitting for the title of this podcast, but what does thriving mean to you? Thriving means having this really cohesive relationship with my family, my business, my diet, my health, everything, having everything come to one and kind of like we talked about before. So thriving is just everything all in one, being able to just rocket life altogether. Awesome. And, you know, you've been really vulnerable here today and shared areas where you've struggled, but uh, a lot of times still looking at someone like you who's had so much success, it can seem unachievable or seem like you kind of already have it all figured out. So in the spirit of continual self-improvement, the second question is, what's one area that you want to change or improve to thrive more? I want to be able to be, I want to be more patient with my kids. Even though we live in this life where we're trying to be all together and then kind of moving in one motion together, I'm still human. And as a father, I'm sure you can understand. It's like when you get upset or you discipline or it's you immediately feel bad. 
because it's not what you want to do. And you immediately self-reflect as a good parent and you say, I could have handled that better. Dang it, I could have handled that better. And this sounds scary, but kids are so easy to mess up. You know, it's easy to mess up a kid and I'm not trying to like strike fear. I don't want to make people paranoid about it. But it's one thing I want to make sure that it's top of my priority list to thrive at better. You know, I want to be able to be present and I want to be able to catch myself before I, you know, I snap and, and, and yell at my kids or something, even though I don't often. I just I want to be able to catch it and be able to constructively use it as a teaching opportunity and help them grow. I think I speak for all parents in saying I find it very reassuring that you too um, str- have have struggles with uh, with parenting and with discipline. And I can you know also say, given that our kids are both five and two, uh, those are two ages where there's different discipline challenges, but both pretty intense. It's very um, intense. one book I did read recently. My, my wife and I have been um, going back and forth on just what is our philosophy around it because I've had that same experience. There's a remarkable book by Daniel Siegel, I think it is, called No Drama Discipline. He also wrote The Whole Brain Child, uh, oh, which okay, is amazing. Okay. Um, and uh, yeah, strongly recommend the, the No Drama Discipline. Thomas, uh, this was incredible. Thank you so, so, so much. I was so excited to get you on the pod because you and I have talked about some of these, these topics before. And I just know how much it means to people to hear your story um, you can obviously hit the facts and spew the science and all of that, which is great too. And and these protocols you shared are, are great, but you know, just hearing those authentic stories about how you thrive and and inspiring our listeners is is super cool. So thanks for joining. Yeah, thanks, man. Thanks for having me. This podcast represents the opinions of the hosts and the guests on the show. The content here is for informational purposes only. Please consult your healthcare professional for any medical questions or advice.